show, we're joined by Matt Amodio, who just recently concluded a 38-day run as Jeopardy! champion, where he won $1.5 million. Recently for us, a little less so for him. Matt's a doctoral candidate in artificial intelligence at Yale University. And what makes him particularly pertinent for us, his hobby is studying baseball stats. Hey, Matt, how you doing? Oh, fantastic. How about you? We're great here. So today, we talk the ins and outs of Jeopardy. We talk Matt's work in the field of big data, and we talk about baseball interests. And we start there. Let's establish some of your baseball credentials. People that listen to this podcast regularly know that when we have players on, we always ask the same first question. Can you tell us the story of a great defensive play you made as a kid? Now, I saw a picture of you at an Akron River Ducks game with a very nice baseball glove. So I'm going to guess that there's a play in your past that you made that you can tell us about. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was primarily a pitcher, but I played some third base too. I was never good at hitting. And so anytime I was in the lineup and playing third, I felt very uh, uh, nervous and I had to make my value with my glove. And I remember one of those pop-ups in short left field down the line, you have to run backwards and Omar Vizquel made them look so easy, but they're actually really hard because you're worried about running fast to get there, but then you're also like holding your head back to see the ball behind you. And I made an over the over the shoulder basket catch. I think I've missed about five or six of them exactly like it, but there was one I made and that one I'll always remember. <laughs> Very nice. So give us your baseball origin story. I have been watching baseball since uh, before I can remember. Indians fan grew up around Cleveland growing up in the 90s was a very fun time to be an Indians fan. I didn't know what it was like to go to a stadium that wasn't sold out until I was like 14. And so it was just the right time in the right place and watched winning teams over and over again. Loved it. So 90s, there are a number of different ways that you could have gone for a favorite player. Who was yours? Kenny Lofton. I didn't properly appreciate him at the time. So I loved that he was he was always good with the glove admired him with a glove, but he also carried himself with like a flair that appealed to me as a kid. So anytime he would see ball four, fastball just off the plate outside, he would flip the bat uh, enthusiastically and then take his gloves off right in front of the umpire. And he got called on strike three looking a couple of those times. But when when he just predicted the call ahead of time, it was so fun. As a sabermetrician, people who study the numbers will tell you that Kenny Lofton actually has a pretty good Hall of Fame case, particularly when you compare it to Tim Raines. Make the case for Kenny Lofton for the Hall of Fame. Yeah, so I this is where I was saying I could not appreciate him properly at the time because uh, I loved those singles that he would leg out with his amazing speed. What I did not know is how valuable his walks were. And I mean, when you have somebody who is walking close to 100 times in a season, but then also has the speed to leg those into stolen bases, he has more value when you look at the on-base percentage than I ever thought before. So he's putting up the the OPS pluses that put him in a well above average hitter and then also playing a great defensive center field at the same time. The war numbers don't lie. He he belongs in the hall. By both Bill James statistical methods, Jay Jaffe's statistical methods, they do say that he's right there. He didn't get the votes, though. He's going to have to get in through Veterans Committee at some point. Who's your favorite obscure Indian slash Guardians player? Yeah, so I, I really can't explain it, but I always loved watching Anar Diaz hit. 
So he uh, uh, he didn't do it that particularly well, but he always looked in control of the bat and he's got a big body type. And so it just looked like the ball would carry off of his bat. It was always fun to watch. So you mentioned it while you were on Jeopardy when Joe Buck was on game seven of the 2016 World Series. Were you there? I was not. I was at games one and two, which were the right ones to be at there if you're an Indians fan. You also said that your favorite ballpark was, you know, Progressive Field. The I'm curious why you would say that. Yeah, so I actually, you should have heard the screaming that was going on inside my head. As soon as I said Progressive Field, I was like, no, can we take that back and retape? I should have said the Jake, Jacob's Field. I never call it Progressive Field uh, uh, to my friends or family, but just I felt like being PC in the moment. Uh, (laughs) Those traditional names never die uh, uh, for the stadium. Yeah, it's so hard to keep track of the the newest uh, uh, marketing uh, name. Have you ever sat in left field with the drummer, John Adams? Yeah. So uh, the bleachers are a great seat, but then also John Adams is so welcoming to, to the random strangers who just want to shake his hand and, and get to meet him. There, there you go. And so it's just, it's a, a cross off the bucket list type item. You also mentioned that you're a ballpark traveler. What's your favorite ballpark to visit? Yeah, I think the Giants Park is my favorite non-hometown one to see because uh, there are so many great views. They have a lot of aisleways where you can watch. So I, when I go, I don't. I like getting a cheap seat up in the upper deck and then not spending a single second at it and walk around. And so I love the ones where you can get a great view from the aisle somewhere. Well, I mean, I watched uh, several innings from uh, from the right field porch there, and it's so cool. It's fantastic. I've been to uh, Oracle a few times, and then just. Before we segue to Jeopardy talk, and I know that there are some people that are specifically here for that, you list baseball data as an interest on your LinkedIn bio. So just give us the brief overview. Before We'll, we'll come back to it, but I want to just get a brief overview first. Yeah, so this has been like a, a long-term thing in my life, and you can trace my my growth through the baseball stats as well. I remember when I was in high school, all I would do is look at baseball reference and uh, look for black ink and, and sort by leaders in the main stats, and I thought that I was doing like baseball stats when I did that. And then gradually, I got a little more comfortable on a computer, and so I would get some pitch FX data and look at uh, sequencing, and, and I was also studying probability at the time. So I I liked saying, okay, well, how do probabilities of this pitch change uh, with uh, nobody on versus with runners on and that kind of thing. And now I I read uh, stuff that's more advanced than I could do. That's for sure. Uh, (laughs) Super interesting. And I've always been most interested in uh, pitching aspects as a pitcher myself. Let's segue to Jeopardy. On your first show, they go to the first commercial break, come out of the break, you get interviewed, and your fun fact was that you self-identified as a coward because you were afraid to take the escalators in Washington, D.C., where they're very steep. And I've experienced them. I imagine many people uh, have experienced them that are listening, and they're very uncomfortable. But your game, for the most part, is anything but cowardly. And I'm going to read you a scouting report that I've compiled that I think describes it pretty well. As a pitcher, you're Cliff Lee. You work down in the zone, you finish up top. You take your time and think things out, but you can change the tempo of the game quickly by changing categories. There's not much muss or fuss to his game. Thanks to Alex Vigderman, my colleague, for helping on that one. As a hitter, you're Jose Ramirez and Jim Tomei. 
Jose Ramirez because of the high batting average. You hit on something like 90% of the clues that you buzzed in on. If you buzz in, you get it right. Tomei, because you like to take big swings. That's intimidating. You'll live with the strikeouts. You don't get a lot wrong. The home runs will be more valuable over time. You hit a lot of home runs. Defensively, you're Franklin Gutierrez. Great range. You cover the whole field of questions from baseball to the Bible, geography to music. And as a game manager, you're Terry Francona or, as we wrote in the Bill James Handbook, Gabe Kapler. You go for the knockout when the situation calls for it. You manage smartly. You know the rule book inside and out. You're well prepared, thanks to Wikipedia. That fair? That's better than fair. That is the highest praise I've heard in a long time. And I especially love the Franklin Gutierrez poll. That, that's a little deep. I, I approve. <laughs> Franklin Gutierrez, a favorite of uh, Sports Info Solutions, the defensive run save staff. With that, explain how you played and managed the game for us. Yeah, so uh, I, I think you put it well in a lot of those cases. So I think that you really have to view the wagering chances in the game as your opportunities. And either you can use the opportunities to bet a lot and, and put the game out, and that might seem risky, but it's actually just as risky to see an opportunity in, in the face and pass it up. So a lot of people come on and take a daily double that they land on uh, in a late game situation and say, what if I don't know it? And they they sit on it. They bet a, a couple thousand and they get it right. And later on in the game, they lose control a little, a little bit. Maybe they get Final Jeopardy wrong and they end up losing the game. But all of it hinged on getting a daily double and betting too low. So I went in saying, I'm not going to let that sell that happen to myself. I am going to take an opportunity and take a swing. I might go down. That might happen, but I'm not going to look at a fastball down the plate and go down that way. I'm going to go down and swing it. And so I, I think that that's just the, the right way to do it. And it, it seemed to work out. And I'll run down just a list of the different approaches that all relate to that. One, we talked about it with when I was talking about Cliff Lee. You didn't start from the top. You started from the bottom row and you worked across. And now occasionally I noticed you would skip one, but I noticed that you, you always worked across. What was the value in doing that? Yeah. So a couple of things. One thing, I think when you go in there, you're going to be a little intimidated and you might be a little off your game and then gradually get more comfortable. I wanted the most expensive clues, the highest leverage stuff to go when my opponents are uncomfortable. So if they're going to start off rough and then get in a groove, let's make most of the money when they're rough and then make the cheap clues when they're in the groove. So that, that was a, a big thing. And then also uh, going across the board, I found from practice, I can like bounce from Bible to geography, to sports, to movies pretty quickly. And other people, I think, struggle from reading online. I, uh, that's something other people struggle on. And so I view it as like, if I, if I'm a, a, a 350 hitter and somebody else is a 300 hitter, I'm okay taking this down to being a 330 hitter if their drop is even worse. So if I can make the terrain rough for everybody, but I acclimate a little bit better, even if it's hard on me, I'm still going to be better off for having done it. So daily doubles, if you got them in the opening round, you went all in automatically, even if the category was cringe motorcycles, a daily double at double jeopardy, you, you basically took the approach. If you could end the game right there, you go big. If you had a very comfortable lead, you went 
relatively small. So you, you kind of alluded to that already. Uh, I want to get to one other thing. You buzzed in sometimes not knowing the answer. What was up with that? Yeah, I, I buzzed in a lot of times uh, not knowing the answer. So I, I would always read the clue in my head and then just say, like, do I recognize it? Are there clues I recognize? I'm a really visual thinker. So if I could picture the answer, then I would say, okay, time to buzz it. And sometimes I would picture the answer and immediately the word would come to me. And then that's 10 seconds before I have to buzz in, no problem. But other times I pictured it and said, ah, the word isn't coming to me, but it will. So press the buzzer and then I have five seconds. Hopefully the word will come to me. A lot of times it did. Sometimes it didn't, including in my last game, several several of those uh, where I'm just, I, I know that wasn't spawn, but but Venom just wasn't popping into my head. Typically, if we have a baseball player on the show, we cite examples of great defensive plays, and then we have them talk about them. We're going to talk in the same vein here with some Jeopardy situational stuff, just because I think it's, it's pretty cool. So let's do that. You're playing, and it's a tough game. You have $13,000. Your opponent has a little more than 10000 You hit a daily double on Australia, and you said, oh my goodness, and you bet everything. That's living on the edge that's i'm trying to think of what the baseball comp to that is but that's a very dangerous approach to things what uh, what were you trying to do there yeah so i i think if i remember correctly this is the first time that i had to actually put uh my money where my mouth was on this so i played this situation out in my head prior to going on on the show and say if you have the chance to do this you're not gonna lay up and and hope that the rest of the game goes your way you're going to try to put the nail in the coffin here but this is not just a strategy now this is actually doing it and so i thought the situation was pretty good for me because it's a geography question uh, or a history question one one of these other things that i'm strong in then it's also uh, somewhere in the middle of the board so it isn't even uh, at the bottom level of difficulty and then also one of my brothers uh, lives in australia now and I said, okay, well, if I underbet on this and then I lose because I didn't bet enough, I'm not going to be able to visit him ever again. And so I, I just got to go for it. That's awesome. And you got it right. And you won going away. You could feel the, the air was let out of the balloon right there and you, you won handily. Uh, there was no catch up. Another game, this was much later in the run. And again, this is around a 38 consecutive Jeopardy wins. Not quite DiMaggio 56, 38's pretty good. You had a game where you were negative going into double Jeopardy, thanks to, I think it was motorcycles and a little bit of a rough go on Muhammad Ali. You basically, go, you go into double, and in three clues, you undid all of the damage that had previously been done. The people that played you, one of them commented on Reddit about, you know, the the... I guess the intimidation factor of playing you and the stress of playing you. And all of a sudden you had this momentum and it was boom up the mountain and you were gone. Uh, Is there a momentum component to Jeopardy? You know, I I think there's got to be a momentum 
uh, component, especially with the buzzer timing. So that's one big aspect of the game that often goes untalked about. There's a rhythm to it. And if you get in the right rhythm, you're, you're going to get in on one, two, three, four in a row. And that builds momentum, builds confidence. It makes other people think they're doing something wrong. And so they might overcompensate and get themselves out of their own rhythm. And so there's a, a lot to, uh, to that momentum component. The buzzer requires the right timing, and in some cases, a timing mechanism. Sometimes you can see it. It's visible where the the contestant's up there. You appear to have the timing mechanism of what I called like the hip pivot, where like you kind of twisted as you were buzzing in, trying to time it to the last word that the host was saying. I don't know if, if others have pointed this out to you. How did you figure out what your... This is essentially like doing a batting stance. How did you figure out what your approach would be with the buzzer? It absolutely, it's like a batting stance because I was imagining myself in the cage as I was doing it. So I remembered I would always have like a couple of touch points um, when I was swinging. So you do a toe tap to start things, you bring, bring the hands up. But my big analogy here is you have to be ready for a fastball, but also be ready to adapt to a curveball uh, if you identify it mid pitch. And so the buzzer timing is not done by a computer. It's done by a human who presses a uh, switch and that lets you, uh, that turns on lights and then you know you can buzz in. And so you can't be ready for uh, a 95 mile an hour fastball and that's it. Because what if the guy is just a little bit later than than usual that one turn? And so I would anticipate it, but then be ready to adapt not seeing the light right when I wanted to and having a little bit of curl and physical movement really helped me get primed, but also adjust. Do you think that being a baseball player helps? And I asked that because a couple of years ago at the Sabre Analytics Conference, they did comparisons of people buzzing into light as a study that was presented, and they found that baseball players were considerably better than your average human being. So I'm curious uh, if you, you felt that that helped. I'm not sure it helped. I think they're at least strongly correlated. So you need to have good vision, fast twitch muscles, and the ability to coordinate the two. And it doesn't surprise me that baseball players are better at that because it's necessary for both. Yeah, unquestionably. And lastly, among the the games that you played, not lastly, but among the games that you played, you hit a final jeopardy in mythology because you remembered a school project that I think you said you had done in like fifth grade. And I'm (laughs) curious about the memory retention skills of a jeopardy player. And again, analogizing it to baseball, thinking about like pitchers that you faced over time and things of that sort, and how your brain compartmentalizes knowledge, if you have anything to bring up about that. Yeah. So I, I think that, I mean, this, this was a very memorable thing to me. I don't like to think about all the stuff that I should have remembered. So who knows what I read in seventh grade that would have made me $2,000 on Jeopardy if I had just remembered it. But it's always great when you can tie something to a physical memory. So that, that often helped with me whenever I uh, try to remember stuff for school, as well as just trivia for gen- general purposes, that I, I wouldn't just try to remember the fact. I would try to tie it to something around me. I listen to audiobooks a, a lot and I walk around when I do it. And it's amazing to me five years later, I don't just remember that scene in the book. I remember the tree in my neighborhood that I was walking past when I listened to that. And so it's just, it's something that's always been helpful to me. 
There's a story of a pitcher from the 1980s that pitched in a playoff game against the Mets where he came out of the bullpen and he's humming a tune to himself as he goes to the mound and he can't identify the tune and it's going, it's going and going and he winds up getting the save in the game and then he talks to a family member afterwards and says, I heard this tune as I was coming in and he starts reciting it. And the mom says, yeah, that's the song that grandma used to sing to you when you were like five years old. Oh, my um, goodness. Yeah, how about that? It, uh, yeah, mem- awesome. it, it's amazing how memory kind of like sticks with someone. Was there a clue or moment where you were like, wow, this this thing's meant to be that it's going to wind up being 38 games? Oh, boy, I, I remember more of the opposite. Where, <laughs> well, so getting, I, a final get jeopardy of, getting a final jeopardy of, of Tolkien. Yeah. Okay. So that that's a good one. So I remember I am very conservative in terms of getting things right, where I don't trust myself actually knowing that until I hear confirmation that that is right. I can be really confident in something, and it's still just I I could have sworn that guy's name was J.D. Dallinger, not Salinger. So I'm I'm always worried about something that I'm sure of being wrong. The one time in Final Jeopardy where I wrote it down and said. I am so sure of this. I'm going to give a smile to the camera as it passes by was that Tolkien question. Cause that was just that, that hit home to me. That's I, there are bigger Tolkien nerds than me, but I, I, I want to meet up. You're like the ultimate. <laughs> out there. Yeah. One of your fun facts was that you watch all of the movies in succession in a given day. And the hardest thing was keeping it to just one fun fact about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I could have done all 38 on them. I want to review some stats here. You had one game where you swept the bottom row in double jeopardy on consecutive clues. The website jarchive.com said that had never been done in their records. You had a game where you got 44 right. That was one shy of what the known record is by Ken Jennings. You pitched two perfect games. Dunn Larson only has one. Len Barker only has one. You had a 40-question perfecto in your last win, which, if I'm not mistaken, was your 15th game in a three-day span because they taped five in one day. Your first 19 wins, you averaged $34,000. Your last 19 wins, you averaged $46,000. You got smarter over the... uh, the break time in between seasons. I'm not even sure where to go with this. I'll go back to the 15 games, three days. And also there was another where your 10th game in two days was probably your most exciting game where you had to hit a daily double for everything. And even still, you wound up at the end of double jeopardy twice as much money as your opponent, Nicole Newlist. It was uh, at the end of double jeopardy, you looked like you were ready to pass out. I I was. <laughs> so explain how Jeopardy is a game of stamina, especially as a pitcher. I think you can appreciate that. Yeah. So uh, one thing that you just don't, I mean, I didn't even really realize it until I went on is you tape a show and then 24 hours later, the show airs. So you'll do a Monday night show and then on Tuesday night, the next game's played, but that's not how they're taped. They're taped in rapid succession. So you play a game and then sometimes you have a lunch break or something, but often it's just 15 minutes later, you're playing the new game and you might have won by a ton. Uh, you might've just squeaked that by, but you start zero, zero, zero tie with the other two contestants uh, in the next game. And so I had some, some embarrassing final jeopardies where I lost more money than I make in a year 
on a single trivia question. And I had to be ready to beat two other smart people 15 minutes later. I had games where I uh, was close to the record for the highest game. And then 15 minutes later, had to be ready to start 0-0-0 with two other opponents. And so a big part of the stamina is knowing that uh, you can't coast on the previous day, or you can't obsess over your mistakes from the previous day, you always have to focus on the one question at hand. And then the, they just keep coming for 12 <laughs> hours straight in a day sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's insane. I It's comparable reliever pitching, you know, three consecutive days, I guess in this case, you know, three consecutive double headers. I think that the inning break is a, is a great analogy because you might like get out of a bases loaded situation and just squeak by. You held your one run lead. That's great. Well, now you have to come back and somebody could take you out of the park if you leave a fastball right down the middle to start the next inning. So you have like these stress situations and then a short break. But then any one pitch could do you in uh, in the next inning. And so you have to, you can't just give a give me over uh, a curveball at any point or you're going to be done for. You always have to be on your game. And we go back to your very first game in the 38 straight wins. This is super interesting to me. And this combines my baseball nerdery and what amounts to my Jeopardy nerdery. And we can use it to segue into baseball stats. In that game, Matt trailed his opponent by nearly $11,000 with 17 clues left and no daily doubles left on the board. Important fact. I don't know if you realize the score at that point, but it looked bleak. But like it was for the 1986 Mets, the 2004 Red Sox, and the 2011 Cardinals, and I guess we could even say the 2016 Indians in the eighth inning of Game 7, this one wasn't over till it was over. And not only did you come back but it required something unusual to happen at the end. And I'm fascinated by little things that happen along the way. There were a couple in this, in this game, again, uh, uh, like the stuff that leads to Rajay Davis's home run, the stuff that leads to your first win. If a traffic engineer in Boise, Idaho, who is a very sharp opponent, doesn't confuse Andrew Lloyd Webber and Steven Sondheim at the end of double jeopardy, he's winning at the end going into final jeopardy, not you. And your run never, ever happens. So two aspects to this. One is just what do you remember about your first game? So uh, one one part where the analogy breaks down to baseball, though, is that if you're on a roll, in, even if it's the bottom of the ninth, two outs, you get to keep playing until they get that last out. So doubles, homers in a row keeps everything going. There's a clock in Jeopardy. <laughs> there are only X number of questions to play, but then there's also a literal clock that, that keeps the time going. And we don't know exactly what that is, but you have a sense of it and you get a one minute warning. So you have a sense of when exactly is one minute to play. And so I remember frantically playing to the clock in a way that as a baseball player just felt very foreign to me. Interrupting here to thank everyone for listening and B, to acknowledge an edit. I didn't like the way that I asked a question to Matt. So just like in Jeopardy!, I've done a retake. So relating this all to baseball, I like a stat called win probability. Like, what are a team's chances of winning at any point during a game? You could do it for baseball, football, basketball, presidential election. You can do all those things with win probability. And with Jeopardy, there's a website, thejeopardyfan.com, run by Andy Saunders, that after each victory lists the winner's chance of winning the next game, two, three, four, etc. But I like to go deeper than that, even if it's not 
possible in the moment. I like in-game win probability. And I would guess, Matt, that your in-game win probability was comparable to what the Indians' win probability was when Rajay Davis faced Geraldus Chapman in Game 7. For those unfamiliar, I'm thinking something like 5%. That led to a conversation I had with a colleague about what factors should go in to a Jeopardy in-game win probability. And I'm curious if you have a take on that. Absolutely. So one factor has got to be part of the board left. So, I mean, you, you, you have more innings to play, you have more chances to come back. Uh, so how many questions are there, but how many daily doubles are left un- unrevealed is also huge. Now you could get super intricate in this number too, because uh, daily doubles are going to be more likely at the bottom of the board. And so if you picked off bottom of the board clues and not found them, that means that that one $1,200 square is like almost certain to be the uh, the location. And so you, you can like adjust this win probability matrix or the daily double location matrix square by square each time. But then you also have to keep in, keep in mind chance of getting it right and where in the game you are when you get it. So if I'm in a position where I need to bet it all and then I get it wrong, I might be done for. If I get that same daily double late in the game where I only bet a little because I already have a cushion, I can get it wrong and still win. And so there's so much uh, game dynamics because your actions are going to change based on the gameplay, which is kind of different from baseball because you always want to hit grand slams and and uh, uh, leave the <laughs> sag for the opponent. Right. So whether it's the seventh and you're up by one or it's the second and you're up 10 already, <laughs> you always want to just score more and give up less. <laughs> one of the things that we were trying to ascertain was like the idea of knowledge base, meaning that if you had gotten three right in a category, let's say it was Muhammad Ali and you got the four, the eight, and the 12, does that mean that you have a higher probability of getting the 16 and the 20 because it's established that you have Muhammad Ali knowledge? Ooh, that's a good question. You see, I, uh, I I actually think that it might get a little more complicated because they put some questions in the top that I think are designed for like uh, the kiddie pool. So uh, if you're just dipping your toes into Muhammad Ali, maybe you've never seen a boxing match in your life, but they'll ask you about uh, his famous catchphrase. And so somebody who doesn't know anything about boxing at least knows the catchphrase. So I, I think that there might be some component to that, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's a, a small smaller relationship than we would expect. I also want to give a shout out to the question writers at Jeopardy, who I know you like. I I love writing trivia questions as much as I like answering them. So I I appreciated that you said that. And I I think that they do a fantastic job. Absolutely. And the only uh, uh, sad part is they read them so quickly and then you move off that a lot of the intricacies of the language and everything, uh, you you just uh, get flown over your head. So segueing to baseball stat topics, because this is, this is, I guess, what some people are going to be here for. One that you brought up to me when I asked you what you'd like to talk about is pitch tunneling. And as a former pitcher, uh, I'm curious for your appreciation of it. I was reading an article on Pitcher List the other day about Shane, Be- Shane Bieber and Jacob DeGrom usage of it and the different stats that you can find on it on a place like Baseball Prospectus. In our Bill James Handbook, we've got an a essay on pitch mix, pitch mix index about which pitchers best mix their pitches. So I'm curious for a pitcher slash statistician take on the subject of pitch tunneling. 
Yeah. So I, I, I was a pitcher uh, in school and this was something I was obsessed over before I even knew the proper word for it. So I, I wanted to make my fastball curveball uh, look exactly the same and then uh, fork in two different directions. And you not only need the pitches to do that, but you need the location. So like a fastball up and in and a curveball in the dirt aren't going to tunnel, but a fastball on the outside corner and a curveball off the plate on the outside will tunnel. And so coming up with pairs of these and then working them into a whole app at sequence, it made me feel like I was playing chess, except instead of chess, I, I was successful. Sometimes I was, I'm a terrible chess player. Um, well, can I ask what your ERA was? It was good. I, I didn't ERA in the twos in high school. In varsity. Uh, JV. And then it got worse. <laughs> I okay. if you take my whole high school career <laughs> and put it into uh, an ERA. It'll be in the twos. Nice. Uh, yeah. So uh, thanks for calling me out on that. So, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm teasing. Uh, okay. I, I was I never threw hard, and uh, my other teammates were throwing fastballs like 15 miles an hour faster than me, and so I had to work a lot on deception there. And I always one of my favorite things is seeing somebody like Aaron Savali, who not only has two directions that he can tunnel, so a fastball and a cutter. But what I could never do is make the fastball go in the opposite direction as well. So his two-seamer, cutter, and straight four-seamer just form a three-pronged tunnel that I, I'm just in awe of. And he had a much improved season this year, if I'm, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. He stepped up on a team that's, I guess, kind of in a, in a rebuilding state. Mm-hmm. Uh, another topic that you seem to have an interest in just curious your your thoughts on it is defensive metrics and the different things that you can tell from those. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I mean, with uh, the shift, it has made this whole problem a lot harder to keep track of because one thing I think that people keep or would realize quickly is that the defensive shift makes some balls easier to get to than others, just in terms of where they're located on the field. But one thing that's interesting to me is also momentum, which you had talked about before. So uh, the shift, you're also going to be moving a little bit and a ball towards the line, if you're shading yourself up the middle, is going to look only five, six feet away, but be impossible to get to because your weight's in the wrong positioning. And so defensive strategies are getting so much more complicated, and that makes the stats that much harder to do as well. Is there something that you'd like to study on the baseball side, but because you're dissertating, doctoring, that you haven't had the chance to really look into? Yeah, I, a lot of the stuff that is really getting close to physics uh, is really interesting to me, but so far above what I'm capable of understanding that it would just be a deep dive just to get myself set. But I mean, a lot of the spin rate stuff where you can analyze spin rate as just an arbitrary column in a data set and then see what it predicts. But then to have something deeper in understanding like how to get a better spin rate out of your, out of your fastball or why is it that high spin rate fastballs up in the zone are more effective than high spin rate fastballs elsewhere in the zone. Everything else held constant. That that stuff's really interesting to me, but haven't haven't delved in. Nice. After you after you complete your doctorate, which we'll get to in a second, I certainly recommend the Saber Analytics Conference, Saber Seminar, all these different events uh, at which you can certainly learn more about that. Let's get get to your professional career. In your professional experience, you've built predictive models for massive data sets in fields such as social media networking, natural language processing, geospatial routing, cybersecurity, and computational 
advertising. Hmm. Tell us about those. Yeah. So one of the cool things about my type of research is uh, we build the models and they're largely data set independent. So I, I know a lot of math and the math is about extracting information and patterns out of the data and really what the data is on uh, doesn't play in that much to, to, to the models themselves. And so that allows me to move from one area to one vastly different area uh, quickly, which is helpful. I was going to say that there are some differences between what I just read and what you're currently working on, which is in the, the medical field and immunology, right? Yeah. And again, I I don't know that much about any of the things that you listed that I, I worked on, which is fun. I learn a little bit on, enough to to get by, but don't consider myself an expert in, in those at all. So how do, how do you approach working on this stuff? Yeah. So I, I think it requires a lot of just comfort with the unknown. So one of the things I, I go in to any data set with is the expectation that I don't understand most of the interesting stuff about it. I start looking at what to visualize. So uh, so use like the, the common techniques to, to embed things in two dimensions so you can plot them and you just try to understand it from a numbers perspective as well as you can. What uh, languages do you work in? I know that my colleagues are going to want to know that one. Yeah, so almost exclusively Python. I did other stuff uh, in research or in my work careers beforehand, but now that I'm on my own, I don't force myself to, to work with any nasty uh, languages <laughs> I don't like. That's heavy stuff. All right. So two fun questions for you as we near the close here. You won in, I think it was April initially, and your first episode aired in July. And then you had to keep it from people for a month that you lost. So you, I would rank not only as this Cliff Leach and Tome Jose Ramirez, but you were in the elite class of secret holders, I would think. What's the secret to keeping a secret? Yeah, so there were different secrets there. So for the first season, I had three months knowing that I won a whole bunch of games and my streak wasn't over yet. So that was great where I, I could just be uh, ecstatically happy that I won my first game and the people didn't know that I'm actually ecstatically happy because there are 17 more that you don't know about yet. So keeping that secret was pretty uh, pretty easy. The harder one was, was the loss because I am a perfectionist and so no matter how many games I won, if the most recent thing I did was lose, I would feel like a loser. And so I, it, it took a little bit of skill to uh, to cheer on the wins, knowing the inevitable was coming. But uh, you know, it's like a team sport. I, I actually felt quite a bit like when I was in high school, and I wanted my high school teammate pitchers to do a little poorly so that I would get to be brought in in relief or uh, that I would get the ball in game one of our playoffs. Uh, so I, I wanted us to win, but there was also some little bit of jealousy riding out, riding on. And so I, I know how to, how to project a, a happiness that's different from what I feel on the inside. <laughs> And then I wanted to, because our company does this, I wanted, I felt for your appearance special, we wanted to invent a stat. And we're a company that loves details. We chart everything. So with the help of a woman named Lily, who goes by the Twitter handle, One Eclectic Mom, I've got one for you. It's called War, Wardrobe Above Replacement, the intersection of UniWatch and Jeopardy. So about an hour after you said yes to being interviewed, I went to this woman, Lily. She's basically 
done an encyclopedic work of what you've worn when you've been on Jeopardy, as amazing and that sounds. She's done charts, she's done images, and I asked her if she could look into any connections between clothing worn and money won. Little did I know that a few hours after she tweets, someone else asks her the same question to which you reply, oh, I'd love to know that. So Mm. I have the information in front of me. We will start with the idea of sweater, jacket, tie. When you wore a sweater on Jeopardy, you averaged $40,000 per win. You did that 11 times. When you wore a jacket on Jeopardy, you averaged $33,900 per win. So sweater greater than jacket. Uh, And you wore jackets a lot. However, when you wore a tie, you averaged $46,000 per win in the nine episodes in which you wore a tie. So, so that's one aspect of it. I'll, I'll, uh, did, did you want to say yeah, something off of that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is actionable information that I need to keep track of. So I have more games to play in my future. Yes. And I, I'm going to be wearing those ties. <laughs> and then, and again, we fully admit this is silly stuff, but you give the people what they want. And on Twitter, people seem to like this stuff. And especially in baseball, like you look at like when the Mets went to their black jerseys, people went nuts. And then they were terrible right when they started wearing them. People are very into apparel and I'm fully embracing of that. We can even get into this. It's the saber metrics of apparel. Color. You wore a pumpkin orange shirt once and won $70,000. You wore a blue plaid shirt with a white collar twice and won $57,000. Those are your two highest shirt wins among things that you wore frequently a maroon shirt shirt worn eight times was a little over forty thousand dollars and then a purple short shirt worn nine times was also about forty thousand dollars that's the full analysis done by thank you lily one eclectic mom on twitter Thank you, Lily. I I love it. And we can even take a a little learning lesson out of this because uh, this is the dangers of extrapolation. One might assume that I could then wear a tie with the orange shirt underneath it and then a sweater on top. And now I've got Holtzauer's single day record in hand, right? No. So I can't necessarily stack these things. (laughs) But it's good. It's fun. Interesting. Uh, People have fun with it. We're glad to provide the fun here. So to wrap up, I do want to note that you won over a million dollars for yourself. You won considerable money for a number of charities. Be the Match, the National Bone uh, Bone Marrow Donor Program. Rating is fundamental. LeVar Burton's literacy charity. Kids Smart, which is a local charity in St. Louis that Joe Buck Buck was uh, hosting for. And the Robin Hood Foundation, uh, David Faber of CNBC. and. Alex Trebek in his last episode made comments to the effect of kindness should always win out. You have been first class with people on social media to an extreme, I might add. I am very impressed with how you have handled social media. As Andy Warhol once said, in the future, everybody will be famous for 15 minutes. I know that you know that because that quote was a question during your run. (laughs) So with all that, How has celebrity been and what has it been like to spread a little kindness to everyone? Yeah, so I'm a shy, introverted person. I didn't know how the celebrity uh, was going to go with me at all. I was shocked 
and how mostly nice people were on the internet. That just is not at all what I expected. Made it easier to be nice myself. If I was dealing with 100% haters and trolls, it might have brought out some negative aspects in me. But seeing other people give support gave me kindness to feel. And that's what I'm trying to spread to other people. So maybe uh, maybe one little smile you give, one little nice comment you give will make that person brighter and then spread it. And so it can easily just pass on. And and uh, I've just, uh, it, I've enjoyed it. Highly recommend Matt on Twitter, Emodio Matt. And also you can find him, where else? At Wikipedia. There's a Wikipedia bio for Matt Emodio. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I want to thank Matt Amodio for joining us on the podcast today. Those of you who listen know that we normally talk to players or baseball media, but every so often we mix it up a little bit. We've talked about the sabermetrics of comedy, what goes into hurricane predicting. I want to give the listeners things that will make them enthusiastic about analytics. That's our bread and butter, whether it's baseball, Jeopardy, comedy, the weather, or whatever. And that gets me to the Bill James Handbook 2022, available now at actasports.com. There's so much great stuff in this book. Bill invented new stats to measure pitch mix, versatility, the best hitter in baseball. My colleagues and I wrote essays about different subjects from the 2021 season. We've got a cover feature on Shohei Otani. 600 pages of baseball goodness to keep you warm through the winter. Available now at actasports.com and wherever you buy your books. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.